This is Ron Stockton. This is an unusual podcast. I want to tell you a story and then read you a story. Maybe a decade ago, we went to Jane's family reunion in Missouri. It was a lot of fun. On the way back, we stopped in Hannibal, the hometown of Mark Twain. It is not much of a town, but it does have a historic connection, so we wanted to see it. We went to the Becky Thatcher home and the Tom Sawyer cave, as they were called for the benefit of tourists. We had a lot of fun. In one of the gift shops, I looked around for something in print that I could buy. I have an original copy of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, apparently purchased by subscription by my great-grandfather. As a boy, I had one of those stamp kits which allowed kids like me to set up their name, get an ink pad, and then stamp their names on everything in the house. I did what my destiny required and stamped the book with my name and address. Putting the stamp on that book probably cut its value in, on eBay in half, but that's not a problem because I don't want to sell it anyway. But on that day in Hannibal, what caught my eye was the autobiography of Mark Twain. I looked through it and was intrigued. I had never heard of this book before and thought it might be interesting. And interesting it was. Samuel Clemens, his real name, described how he had tried to write a traditional autobiography but had failed. Somehow the narrative approach was dry and mechanical. Then he came up with an alternative strategy. He would write short pieces, fragments, of often five pages or so, on specific topics. These were in no particular order, just whatever came to mind. They were thrown into boxes. When Jane and I were in Hartford a few years ago, we visited the Twain house and saw the office where he worked. I could imagine those boxes on the shelf just waiting for another essay to be dropped in. For those interested, the Twain house and the home of Harriet Beecher Stowe were just next to each other. The yards were linked so the two neighbors could walk over and visit if the spirit moved them. Visitors can buy a ticket for both houses if they wish, which we did. I'm reluctant to use the word tourist, by the way. Tourists are people who just wander in and have an experience. Visitors are people who have read about these people and are seeking to expand their already vast knowledge base. Well, anyway, that's how I convince myself I'm never a tourist. I don't want to get off track, but I found the Stowe house even more engaging than the Twain house. The featured item in her living room was a photograph of her daughter, who died young. Harriet said that standing at her daughter's grave during the funeral, her mind turned to the South and to the fact that enslaved women often had their children sold away. This became one of the powerful scenes in Uncle Tom's cabin. Who can forget how Eliza, who realizes her son is about to be taken away, risks everything, fleeing the bloodhounds and crossing a river in winter, jumping from one piece of ice to another? For Harriet, this scene was not business, it was personal. Anyway, back to that autobiography. Mark Twain was not a modest person, and he loved to exaggerate. That's what storytellers do. They exaggerate. Everyone knows they're exaggerating, but they tell those stories with a straight face, and everyone is in on the joke. A reporter once asked him if he had any siblings. He said he was not sure. He had a twin, but one of us drowned in the bathtub when we were small babies, and I'm not sure if it was him or me. Do you know the difference between a comedian and a humorist? A comedian tells funny stories. A humorist tells stories funny. Mark Twain was the greatest humorist of the 19th century. Garrison Keillor was the greatest humorist of our age. When he would come on stage and start talking about what happened in Lake Wobegon last week, you were tempted to get out a map to find the town. 
It was the same with Mark Twain. The person who wrote the introduction to this autobiography said Twain wrote to amuse himself. You can see that as you read the essays. He would throw in some factoid that any reader will know is not true, but who cares? It's all for entertainment. Autobiography wrapped in humor. Consider Twain's opening story. He reports that he was born in Florida, Missouri, an almost invisible village, as he puts it. The village contained 100 people, and I increased the population by 1%. It is more than many of the best men in history could have done for a town. It may not be modest of me to refer to this, but it's true. There is no record of a person doing as much, not even Shakespeare. But I did it for Florida, and it shows that I could have done it for any place, even London, I suppose. Well, we have the facts, but also the exaggeration and the entertainment. He sounds delusional, but everybody knows he's just riffing for the sake of the audience. But he also had insights others missed. He told his executor that when he was gone, he should put these fragments into some order, but not chronological order. He wanted the past and the present to come face to face. Twain believed that autobiography would never be the same. There will be a new form, he said, that will change memoirs forever. Hmm. Twain specified that certain pieces should be held back. They should not be published for 75 years. Others should not be published for 500 years. Those are still tucked away somewhere in a vault waiting for people in the year 2400 to enjoy them. This reminds me of J.D. Salinger, who wrote book after book following the raging success of Catcher in the Rye, but he never published them. They will appear in time, presumably making him a bestseller over and over in multiple centuries. Twain wrote an introduction to this autobiography. It is short, just one page, and has a remarkable beginning. In this autobiography, I shall keep in mind the fact that I am speaking from the grave. I am literally speaking from the grave, because I shall be dead when the book issues from the press. He said that there is a problem with writing for publication during your life. It is a bit like writing a love letter, meant for one person, but then released to the public. Everything in it is true, and yet it somehow violates your privacy. And if you know it will be released, you would shrink from speaking your whole frank mind. By writing from the grave, he said, he can be honest. Two essays address death. One was of his beloved daughter. When she died, he went upstairs to the office and wrote a reflection. Susie passed from life in the Hartford home in 18th of August, 1876. Most people, if their daughter had died, would collapse into despair. But Mark Twain knew he was a historic figure, and he knew that the autobiography he was writing would be a historic product. At that moment, he had to act not as a father, but as Mark Twain, writer. The final essay in his autobiography was when his wife died. It starts with a simple sentence, Joan is dead. He said that once she died, he had nothing else to write. I hope you will consider reading this book. The title is The Autobiography of Mark Twain. The editor is Charles Nieder, N-E-I-D-E-R. There are other so-called autobiographies of Twain, but this version is truly unique. Before I let you go, I want to read to you one of the stories that absolutely charmed me. It has to do with a financial crisis. Twain and his roommate were early in their careers, working on the books they hoped would make them famous. But meanwhile, they had to feed themselves. They came up with an ingenious idea. They realized that out west, 
there were many small towns that had newspapers. Those were usually modest operations. The editor was typically the chief writer. Most of their stories were about local events, someone dying, someone getting born, an accident, a crime. What they realized was that those editors would love to have something worth reading. The two men contracted with those editors to provide a regular flow of entertaining stories in exchange for a payment. That supported them while they did their serious writing. Twain was not a religious person, but his roommate was very religious. He was also in charge of finances. One day he said to Twain, We need $3 by the end of the day. Twain was puzzled. How do we get $3 and why are you looking at me? The roommate said Twain should go looking for the money. The Lord will provide. That didn't exactly sound like a winning strategy, but Twain left to walk the streets looking for $3. Well, let's let him tell it. Hint, it involves a dog. Here we go. Swinton was one of the dearest and loveliest human beings I've ever known, and we led a charmed existence together in a contentment which knew no bounds. Swinton was refined by nature and breeding. He was a gentleman by nature and breeding. He was highly educated. He was of a beautiful spirit. He was pure in heart and speech. He was a Scotchman and a Presbyterian, a Presbyterian of the old and genuine school, being honest and sincere in his religion and loving it and finding serenity and peace in it. He hadn't a vice, unless a large and grateful sympathy with Scotch whiskey may be called by that name. I didn't regard it as a vice because he was a Scotchman, and Scotch whiskey to a Scotchman is as innocent as milk to the rest of the human race. In Swindon's case, it was a virtue and not an economical one. $24 a week would really have been riches for us. That's how much they got from their, their articles. If we hadn't had to support that jug. Because of the jug, we were always sailing pretty close to the wind. And any tardiness of the arrival on any part of our income was sure to cause some inconvenience. I remember a time when a shortage occurred. We had to have $3, and we had to have it before the close of the day. I don't know now how we happened to want that money at one time. I only know that we had to have it. Swinton told me to go out and find it, and he said he would also go out and see what he could do. He didn't seem to have any doubt that we would succeed, but I knew that that was his religion working on him. I hadn't the same confidence. I hadn't any idea where to turn to raise all that bullion, and I said so. I think he was ashamed of me privately because of my weak faith. He told me to give myself no uneasiness, no concern, and said in a simple, confident, and unquestioning way, the Lord will provide. I saw that he fully believed that the Lord would provide, but it seemed to me that if he had my experience, well, never mind that. Before he was done with me, his strong faith had its influence, and I went forth from the place almost convinced that the Lord really would provide. I wandered around the streets for an hour trying to think up some way to get the money, but nothing suggested itself. At last, I lounged into the big lobby of the Ebbett Hotel, which was then a new hotel, and sat down. Presently, a dog came loafing along. He paused, glanced up at me, and said with his eyes, Are you friendly? I answered with my eyes that I was. 
He gave his tail a grateful wag and came forward and rested his jaw on my knee and lifted his brown eyes to my face in a winningly affectionate way. He was a lovely creature, as beautiful as a girl. And he was made all of silk and velvet. I stroked his smooth brown head and fondled his drooping ears, and we were a pair of lovers right away. Pretty soon, Brigadier General Miles, a hero of the land, came strolling by in his blue and gold splendors with everybody's admiring gaze upon him. He saw the dog and stopped, and there was a light in his eye, which showed that he had a warm place in his heart for dogs, like this gracious creature. Then he came forward and patted the dog, and he said, He is very fine. He is a wonder. Would you sell him? I was greatly moved. It seemed a marvelous thing to me. The way Swinton's prediction had come true. Yes, I said. The general said, what do you ask for him? Three dollars. The general was manifestly surprised. He said, three dollars? Only three dollars? Why, that dog is a most uncommon dog. He can't possibly be worth less than fifty. If he were mine, I wouldn't take a hundred dollars for him. I'm afraid you're not aware of his value. Reconsider your price if you like. I don't wish to wrong you. But if he had known me, he would have known that I was no more capable of wronging him than he was of wronging me. I responded with the same quiet decision as before. No, three dollars, that's his price. Very well, since you insist upon it, said the general, and he gave me three dollars and led the dog away and disappeared upstairs. In about ten minutes, a gentle-faced middle-aged gentleman came along and began to look around here and there and under tables and everywhere. And I said to him, is it a dog you're looking for? His face had been sad before and troubled, but it lit up gladly now, and he answered, Yes, have you seen him? Yes, I said. He was here a minute ago, and I saw him following a gentleman away. I think I could find him for you, if you would like me to try. I have seldom seen a person look so grateful, and there, are, and there was gratitude in his voice when he conceded that he would like me to try. I said I would do it with great pleasure, but that it might take a little time. I hoped he would not mind paying me something for my trouble. He said he would most gladly pay, repeating that phrase, most gladly, and asked me how much. I said, three dollars. He looked surprised and said, dear me, it is nothing. I will pay you ten, quite willingly. But I said, no, three is the price. And I started for the stairs without waiting any for any further argument. For Swinton had said, that that was the amount that the Lord would provide, and it seemed to me that it would be sacrilegious to take a penny more than was promised. I got the number of the general's room from the office clerk, and when I reached his room, I found the general there caressing his dog and quite happy. I said, I'm sorry, but I have to take the dog back. He seemed very much surprised and said, take him? Why, he's my dog. You sold him to me, and at your price. Yes, I said, that's true, but I have to have him, because the man wants him again. What man? The man that owns him. He wasn't my dog. The general looked even more surprised than before, and for a moment he couldn't seem to find his voice. Then he said, do you mean to tell me that you were selling another man's dog and you knew it? Yes, I knew he wasn't my dog. Then why did you sell him? I said, well, that's a curious question to ask. I sold him because you wanted him. You offered to buy the dog. You can't deny that. I was not anxious to sell him. 
I had not even thought about selling him. But it seemed to me that if you that if it could be any accommodation to you, he broke me off in the middle and said, accommodation to me, it is the most extraordinary spirit of accommodation I've ever heard of. The idea of you selling a dog that didn't belong to you. I broke him off there and I said, there's no relevancy about this kind of argument. You said yourself that the dog was probably worth $100. I only ask you three. Was there anything unfair about that? You offered to pay more. You know you did. I only ask you three. You can't deny it. Oh, what in the what in the world has that to do with it? The crux of the matter is that you didn't own the dog. Can't you see that? You seem to think there is no impropriety in selling property that isn't yours, provided you sell it cheap. Now, I said, please don't argue about it anymore. You can't get around the fact that the price was perfectly fair perfectly reasonable, considering that I didn't own the dog. And so arguing about it is only a waste of words. I have to have him back again because the man wants him. Don't you see that I haven't a choice in the matter? Put yourself in my place. Supposing you had sold a dog that didn't belong to you. Suppose you... Oh, he said, don't muddle my brains anymore with your idiotic reasoning. Take him along and give me a rest. So I paid back the $3 and led the dog downstairs and passed him over to his owner and collected three for my trouble. I went away with a good conscience because I had acted honorably. I never could have used the three that I had sold the dog for because it was not rightly my own. But the three I got for restoring him to his rightful owner was righteously and properly mine because I had earned it. The man might never have gotten the dog back at all if, he hadn't been, if it hadn't been for me. My principles have remained to this day what they were then. I was always honest. I know I can never be otherwise. It is, as I said at the beginning, I was never able to persuade myself to use money which I had acquired in unquestionable ways. Now then, that's the tale. Some of it is true. Well, I hope you liked that and that you will buy this book and read it. The stories are a bit like peanuts. You really can't stop listening with you really can't stop with just one. But you can read a few each day without disrupting your life. Thanks for listening.